Well, the biggest secret that I pass on to people who want to try being a bit funny first, and this is me doing the talk that I gave in San Francisco when I was over there, is that ask your friends, ask your family, ask your significant other, ask your husband, ask your wife, what are the top five funny stories you tell socially? Top five funny stories that you tell when you go to a barbecue, you tell when you go to a dinner party or something like that. I'm Valerie Koo from the Australian Writers' Centre and you're listening to my friend Ash Roy on ProductiveInsights.com. Welcome to the Productive Insights Podcast, where you can learn how to systemize, automate, and scale your business via the internet. To access previous episodes and useful productivity tips, go to www.ProductiveInsights.com. Now, here's your host, Ash Roy. This episode is brought to you by the Productive Insights Done For You podcast launch service, which positions you as a leading authority in your market and successfully turns listeners into high-value repeat customers. Book a call with me on callashroy.com to discuss how we can get started. I look forward to speaking to you soon and helping you position yourself as a market leader. If you enjoyed this episode, you might also want to check out episode number 67 with Matthew Kimberley on how to use public speaking to grow your leads. And the URL for that is ProductiveInsights.com forward slash Matthew hyphen K-I-M-B-E-R-L-E-Y and Matthew is spelt with two T's. You might also want to check out episode number 70 with Valerie Koo, where we talk about the power of stories. And stories are a very important part of a good quality presentation. And another couple of episodes that you would find useful, in my opinion, are episodes 73 and 74 with Darren Rouse, where he talks about creating content which really moves your listeners. I like what he says about the before and after avatar where you map your audience's avatar before you deliver the content and you think about where you want to get the avatar to as a result of them consuming your content and then have your content bridge that gap. So I hope you find those related episodes to be useful. Enjoy this episode and let's get to it. Our guest today is a registered pharmacist who was dared into trying stand-up comedy and he loved it so much that he won Australian Comic of the Year and moved to the UK to be a full-time comic over there for eight years. They say laughter is the best medicine and it must be true. (laughs) Now, he's back and he divides his time between writing books. He's on his 15th, cracking up crowds on the international speaking circuit, teaching people how to use humor in their business. He has spoken to over 500,000 people. That's half a million people since he first leapt up on stage in 1997. And he's just returned from San Francisco where he was the only non-American asked to speak at their annual Funny Business Conference. There he shared the stage with some leading executives, including the founder of Evernote and the director of video at Facebook, who happens to be one of Mark Zuckerberg's direct reports. Today, I'm delighted to welcome Marty Wilson of martywilson.com.au. Welcome, Marty. G'day. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me, Ash. Great to have you on the show, man. It was pretty awesome that you met the founder of Evernote. If you happen to meet him again, you must tell him that... uh, Evernote needs to do some work with their <laughs> with their service delivery. They've started charging us for what they used to give us for free. Yeah, I told him that. I had a stern word to yeah. him. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, mate. I appreciate that. 
So, Marty, let's get into the conversation about humour and public speaking. So we, we're here to talk about humour and how it's so important in public speaking. So let's start off by talking a bit about why you think humour is so important and how it can be used in public speaking as a powerful tool. Well, I guess the basis of it for me is that, you know, information is out there everywhere these days. You know, information, if you want to find out about things, that's all out there already. You know, so people sort of going to the market saying, I've got some crucial information that everyone needs. That's fine. But so does everyone else. Yep. I did a, like I'm, I'm in the speaking game. I, I did a search for um, business speaker the other day and Google returned 353 million results. <laughs> so when, when, Is you that search, all? <laughs> when you, when you search for business speaker, but on the converse of that, I, I say, you know, to be successful in business these days, yeah. you have to get up on stage. Now, for some people, that stage is doing podcasts like you're doing now. For some people, that stage is talking in front of an audience like I do. For some people, it's one-on-one sales calls. For some people, it's presenting in a boardroom. But for you to be seen as an authority and someone who should be listened to, you have to get up on stage in some way or another. And the way to do that, the way to do that in a way that stands out, the way to be the go-to person in your niche is to connect with people on a far deeper level, on a much more human level. Mm -hmm. And if you look at research and psychology, and even if you just look at sites like eHarmony and, um, and, and all those dating websites, what's the one thing that everybody demands on eHarmony? GSOH, good sense of humor. We want to hang around with people. It's incredibly engaging and charismatic to be humorous. And the great thing is, when it comes to using humor in business, is that the bar is so low <laughs> because- oh, okay. Because most people, you know, you look at, you go to like, go to TED Talks and look at the search for the funniest TED Talks of all time. They've got a list and the gag per second rate on that is so low compared to like a stand-up comedy club or something like that. Everyone sort of thinks they've got to be stand-up comedy level or just not even try and just put the corporate mask on and not even try. I do that. Yeah, yeah. But if you have a look at Ken Robinson, one of the most famous TED Talks of all time, that our schools are killing creativity. Like his per minute joke rate, he tells probably about a joke every minute and a half yeah. or something like that. But it's voted as one of the funniest TED Talks of all time because – and if you have a look at his talk, quite often his jokes don't land. But he just stands there with a big smile on his face and doesn't care. So the point I'm sort of circling back around to making is that the most socially acceptable – and the most psychologically proven way to bond with people very, very quickly is to use humor. And this comes down to our brains separate everybody in the world, everyone we meet, into them and us. That's just how we've evolved. You know, and our brains apparently can accommodate about 200 people into people we call us, people our brains call us because of the, the size of our tribes, you know, 20,000 years ago. Wow, that's fascinating, man. And if I tell a joke and you and I laugh at the same thing, mm-hmm. our brains very quickly go from you and I talking now, yep. your brain sees me as a them. Yep. Um, and, I'm, you know, we're getting on pretty well and um, we've spoken a couple of times on the phone, but your brain sees me as a them. Whereas if I make a joke, particularly if I make a joke at, at what you would consider a common enemy or someone that's okay. outside your us, yeah. if I make a joke at someone out there, your brain very quickly, instead of sees you and I talking to each other like this, yes. it, you put your arm around me metaphorically and yep. we're both laughing at something over there. Right, right. So it unites you. Yeah, and it very quickly changes your perception of me into I suddenly become an us. And then once your brain considers me and us, 
without being too cynical about it, you're much more open to me influencing you in whether that be trying to sell you something, whether trying to persuade you to invest in my startup, whatever it is I'm trying to get you to do from my stage. And I was talking before about you being on stage. Whatever I'm trying to get you to do, your brain is far more open to doing that once it sees me as an us. You know, the old right. sales training of, you know, we buy from people we know, like, and trust. Yes, yes. Yeah. So it's um, absolutely fascinating and wonderful technique. I love it. Is there some literature around this? There is, yeah, yeah. If you like, I could send you through some um, some references about, about that to attach in your podcast and that sort yeah, of thing. Yeah, yeah, that'd be great. Yeah, how humor sort of, you know, brings, creates the us and the usness out of uh, yeah, yeah. themness. Well, I interviewed a guy called Matthew Kimberley on my podcast not long ago, and we spoke purely about public speaking. And I actually saw him speak on stage. As a matter of fact, I had the honor of sharing the stage with him at an event back in March this year in 2016. And he was funny. He was very funny, very animated, you know. And I think what you were talking about at the start of this conversation was the, your point about it's not about information, it's about infotainment or edutainment. Yeah. You know, it's the bar has has risen and we need to have a way of breaking the ice, becoming more relatable and, you know, connecting with other people. The thing that I always say is quite a few other speakers come to me and ask me to help funny up their stuff and, you know, people in corporate and that sort of stuff. If they've got a big presentation coming up, they ask me to help them funny up their thing. And, and the, the thing that I say is that just trying to do humor, just having a go, that already lifts you above everybody else in your niche. Like, And if you have a go, particularly if you have a go at laughing at yourself or laughing at common enemies, then just having a crack and this, the key to it is not caring if it doesn't work. Right. If you try a joke and make it really obvious to the audience that you don't care that that didn't, in their minds, that wasn't a nine out of 10 joke. I remember one time, I tell a story where the story starts with me relating when I was walking around Kingston-upon-Thames in London with my newborn, six-weeks-old baby-born son in one of those Baby Beyond things. Yep. In, at the time I did this, I said, um, oh, you know those Baby Beyond things that you um, that you can strap a boy to your chest? And then I, re- <laughs> I realised what I said and I just start <laughs> laughing because the child who it was, was six weeks at the time is now 12 and I was just – there was a bit of a laugh and I said, sorry, in my head that's really funny because I'm picturing my now 12-year-old son like strapped to my chest yeah. and I'm walking around and he's just going, Dad, this is getting a bit weird. <laughs> and the fact that I stuffed up and I was in the middle of it and they laughed at me and I didn't care that they laughed at me and then I made fun of me even more mm. after that and opened up to them what was going through my mind, that became incredibly charismatic. In actual fact, when I give a speech now, when I tell that story, I pretend that I made that mistake again and and I just do exactly the same little bit of material again, but it came from me doing a mistake and owning that mistake and not caring that I'd stuffed up in front of the crowd. And it's a win-win because if you mess up with your joke, you can laugh at yourself and that in itself can be an icebreaker. So even if the joke doesn't work, you still win. Now, I've got to say, man, I have been told by a lot of people in the past that I have a good sense of humor, but I've never let it come out in this podcast. So maybe this is a good opportunity for me to, maybe this is a turning point. Maybe I'm going to start being a little bit more humorous and a bit more lighthearted. Well, the biggest secret that I pass on to people who want to try being a bit funny first, and this is me doing the talk that I gave in San Francisco when I was over there, is that ask your friends, ask your family, ask your significant other, ask your husband, ask your wife. What are the top five funny stories you tell socially? 
top five funny stories that you tell when you go to a barbecue, you tell when you go to a dinner party or something like that. And like the top five story that when you start telling it, your wife just rolls her eyes and goes, oh, God, he's telling the you know Marks and Spencer story again. Yeah. God, he tells this all the time. Like the stories that you know really well. Yeah. And so you know where to, what information needs to be in there to, for the punchline to work. You know how to hit the punchline and how loud to be. And, and you know it well enough that you become the characters in the story when you tell the stories. Get those top five stories if you've got a presentation coming up and work out how to put two or three of them into your presentation. Yep. And put one at the start, one at the end, and one about two-thirds of the way through when the, when the audience's energy is flagging a little bit. And the key to it is this. An author called Jeffrey Gittimer said that the end of laughter is the beginning of listening. And it's so true. If, if wow. you tell a story and – bang, the audience is laughing. Like they've got nuclear magnetic resonance imaging and, you know, they, they, where they slide yeah. you into that thing and the little thing whizzes oh, around. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and they found out that when you're listening to humour, um, like, you know, you and I talking now, it's just your prefrontal cortex is um, deciding whether you believe any of the crap that I'm going, going on with. But when you tell a joke, like you're, almost your whole brain lights up, you know, the right side of your brain, yeah. the space, spatial orientation, it's examining, it's imagining pictures that are going on inside the brain, like the language centers on the left-hand side and your brain gets flooded with all these feel-good hormones. So in that, in that split second or five or six seconds after you've just made someone really piss themselves laughing, yeah. They will believe almost anything you say, as long yeah. as it's not ridiculous. So, the, so I say, you know, tell one of these stories that you know always goes really well, yeah. and then use one of these phrases. Say, like, the reason I tell you this story is this. The lesson in this story for all of us is this. The thing that I learned from that incident is this. And make sure you say, you know, whatever point you're trying to make with your 20-minute presentation or your sales pitch or whatever – make sure that you talk about something that is really important because once you've really got them to know, like, and trust you, then, you know, it's not absolutely ridiculous. And, you know, sometimes you see on TV those ads where a mate of mine, we used to laugh and call them like, so to our product ads, you know, like where like, you know, they've just, something happens and somebody's brave and so, and our product is brave too. Like, <laughs> like if you make it clumsy like that, then they'll just dismiss you and they'll never like, know, like, and trust you again. Yeah. But for example, I tell a story, one of the speeches I do is all about change, called Change Without Fear. Mm -hmm. And I tell a story about this friend of mine called Sean Richards. Now, Sean Richards is in one of those families where everything they do, they've done it because they've always done it that way. Like mm -hmm. it's, a, it's family tradition. And I'm sure, you know, some of your listeners will either be in a family like that or they'll be married into a family like that, yep. even, even worse. In Sean's family, they had this tradition where every single Sunday afternoon at 4 p.m., they had the traditional Richards family Sunday afternoon lamb roast. And they were doing it for four generations. If you're in the family, you have to go. Like, they live in Sydney. And like blood or broken bones is the only reason you're allowed to not go. Yeah. And Sean married this girl called Sophie. In Sophie's family, they had a tradition too. that The firstborn male child <laughs> in every generation was called Richard. Right. Now, Sean Richards didn't want a kid called Richard Richards. <laughs> but he was so desperate to get his lamb roast up, he gave in. And so little Richie Richards was born, Richie, Richie Richards. And it's quite a cool name when you're in yeah. primary school. You know, like, hey, I'm Richie Richards. Look, hey, there's Richie Richards. 
first day of big school, Richie came home in absolute floods of tears. Yeah. He's like, oh, please don't send me back to big school, mum and dad, please. And Sean and Sophie are like, oh, what is it, mate? Well, I know the teachers are a bit different, different teacher, but why, please don't send me to big school? And they're like, what is it, mate? I know none of your friends there. What is it? Please don't send me to big school. Like, what is it, mate? What is it? They call me Double Dick. <laughs> <laughs> and so – like that's just a personal story from my life, but I use that story in my speech about change without fear to illustrate the point that because we've always done it that way is no reason to keep doing anything. Yeah. And so the great thing about it is I also have a speech on leadership that I do and I use that same story to illustrate the point that in leadership, when your internal alarm bells are going off really strongly, take some time out and listen to what they're saying. Hmm. And I say, you know, Sean's instincts were screaming at him not to call his kid Richard Richards, hmm. but he didn't listen to them. So you can see, like, that's the same story, same really funny personal story from my life that I used to tell socially all the time. And I can put it into two very different presentations and it, it post-rationalizes really well. And it's a actually, you know, I'm not mugging the audience or shortchanging yeah. the audience. It's a really good story that backs up those two points, but two very different points. Mm. So that's, that's my absolute master skill. Just start getting together a bank of funny stories that you can tell well mm. and just inserting them when you're up on your stage. And drawing them into the learnings or into the key points that you're trying to make. So, you know, the humor opens them up. And then once they're open to listening, once they see you as an us and not a them, then yep. they're more receptive to the key points you're trying to make. Now, Absolutely. I've got a talk coming up at Macquarie Bank in September, so I'm going to try and get some of these gags in there. Just, just quickly let me say that um, you know, people sometimes say, oh, but you know, can you tell personal stories about your life that the – it's been psychologically proven that the more personal something is, the more universal something is. You know, people oh, okay. sort of try, people try and sort of, oh, no, I need to talk about concrete business cases and that sort of stuff. But for people who aren't in that industry or for people that it's quite easily dismissed as being irrelevant for them. Whereas if you talk about friends and family and all those things that we all hold pretty dear, everyone in the audience has friends and family and kids and know what kids are like when they go to school and that sort of thing. So, the more personal it is, the more universal it is. Okay, cool. Now, uh, so I'll definitely try and get some of these personal humorous stories into my talk at MacBank. I also had Kevin Rogers, who's now a copywriter, but he used to be a stand-up comedian in the US and a couple of episodes with him. So they're, they're really funny. I'll link to those in the show notes as well. We laugh when our brains make that leap between, because there's an old, an old saying that in every joke, there's two stories happening. Yeah. And it's when your brain leaps from one that you've been led down first, all of a sudden you realize this is what's actually really happening. Yes. That's when we laugh and we yes. realize what the, the guy called Scott Dickers, who started the, uh, the Onion website, he talks oh, about yes. it as yes. the, 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 the subtext. Once you realize the subtext, that's the point when you start laughing. No, I get it. I watched this show. Uh, what's the guy who does the Mr. Bean guy, uh, Rowan Atkinson? And yeah, yeah. I remember watching the show years ago, and I really like what he said about humor. And one of the things he said was, if you want to bring out humor and things, absurdity is a good way to do it. So contrasting really small things with really big things. So like, for example, yeah. having a you know huge, what we normally think is huge, like a bus, and having a tiny little bus next to a huge person, the absurdity of that. And yep. that's how I tend to do most of my humor. You know, it's the, it's the black humor, no pun intended, but it's a sort of like a tongue in cheek, sarcastic kind of humor, you know, just trying to bring out the absurdity of a situation. Yeah. yeah. That's a great humor technique. I mean, Monty Python 
were really good yes. at this stuff uh, where they would take something that was really serious and yes. treat it really lightly or yes. take something that's really light and treat it really seriously. For example, there was the sketch where a couple are in a restaurant and Graham Chapman just says, oh, you know, I've just got a bit of a dirty fork. Mm. And the waiter goes, oh, my God, I'm very sorry. I'll go and get the manager. And then the manager comes out and, you know, the manager the manager's going, look, we are so sorry. We were just clawing ourselves back. And then this, yeah. this. And then, like, he, he, like, ends up stabbing himself to death on the table and the and the chef comes out and tries to hatchet them to death. So, you know, the idea of taking something that's really small yeah. and everyone treats it really seriously or taking something that's really serious, like, you know, everything from elections to, you know, the whole life of Brian was all about taking something that's supposedly really serious and treating it really lightly. Yes. And Eddie Izzard is very good at doing that sort of thing with that famous bit that he did about uh, Darth Vader in the Death Star cafeteria, you know, where he was um, the, the guy behind the cafeteria saying, you know, I don't care if you're Darth Vader, you still need a tray. The food's hot. <laughs> so that's great. Okay, so the action step here for the listeners is try and think of something that you can do that you can incorporate into your conversations for starters. You don't even have to do it at a public speaking event if you're not a public speaker, but into your conversations or in a meeting maybe even where you can just break the ice and bring some lightheartedness to the situation. I'm going to make a sincere attempt at being a little bit more humorous in future episodes. Let's see how I go. <laughs> one, one little extra thing, like the first step is to gather stories from your own life because – their stories you know really well already. Yes. But if you're in a business sense, if you could just search for whatever, just say your topic is automotive sales or something mm. like that. Just search for dumbest automotive sales stories. Great funniest, idea. Funniest automotive sales stories. Automotive sales, epic fails. You know, just all the things to gather up a big bank of funny stories. Yes. Because if you're trying to persuade somebody to – take a particular path, you know, buy this particular vehicle. If you can, for example, if, or, you know, beef up their cybersecurity, if you can find funny stories of people who haven't done what you're trying to get people to do yes. and insert those into your sales presentations and that sort of thing, it, in a really humorous way, reinforces your message without you having to labor and not. But, you know, 47% of people don't have enough cybersecurity. Like these sort of facts are already out there. Whereas if you tell humorous stories that reinforce your message, it's a far more engaging and disarming way of getting your message across. Cool. All right. So you recently spoke at this event in San Francisco. So tell me a bit about that event. How did that go? And what were the key things that you learned from the event? What were the key learnings that you had about delivering to an American audience? I've done a few gigs over there before. So, you know, for example, you have to translate a lot of stuff. Like I do like an, an old stand-up comedy bit that I do. I, I still manage to squeeze that into most of my presentations when I'm talking about humor. And for example, you have to really run it past everyone and you can't say windscreen, you have to say windshield. You know, you right. can't, you know, I'm in, in this little, I, I do this bit about, uh, diffusing road rage using old Broadway show tunes. And and so in that, I can't talk about, you know, um, Bentleys and um, or Falcons or that sort of stuff. It has to be like, you know, Buicks and Lincolns and that sort of stuff. Yeah. So I had to change the song and rehearse the song. And, you know, I, I can't mention that the guy was wearing a country road shirt. He has to be wearing a Timberland shirt and that yeah. sort of stuff. So you, right. you have to um, be very careful. And and I have to slow down. Like I, I talk quite fast and yeah. – 
And so I have to slow down. So as I'm standing at the back way to go on, it's like, you know, big and slow, big and slow, big and slow, <laughs> just to remind myself to just enunciate. When I came back from doing stand-up in the UK for eight years, all my friends were just mocking me relentlessly because I just had to learn to enunciate very correctly when I was over there or, or they just couldn't understand me. Um, what? What? Was, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So there's that, you know, you have to understand that they do speak a very different lingo and and run it past a local over there first. And and I I always say whenever you're going to another country or even a local, another area, deliberately find local references so that they appreciate the fact that you've bothered to find local references. You know, for example, I talk about in this road rage bit, since I was talking about that before, I talk about the sort of person that buys a Range Rover so they can successfully navigate those treacherous leafy avenues of Mossman. <laughs> you know, and, and so, but in the UK, I have to say, buys a Range Rover so they can successfully navigate the treacherous leafy avenues of Hampstead in London. But they would still get it though, because you said leafy avenues. They, they would, but the fact that you've bothered to take the effort. So like, oh, you know, when I'm, in, when I'm in Edinburgh, I say the leafy avenues of Morningside, you know, when yeah, I'm in... Yeah. When I'm in San Francisco, I say Walnut Creek. You know, when I'm in Auckland, I say Remuera. You know, like um, and all that stuff. You have to go to the point. So you just, I've just got a little Evernote file in, in my phone yep. of all my translations for when I'm in different parts of the world doing uh, speaking and that sort of thing. Cool. That's a good point. That's a good takeaway. So let's talk about the challenges now. So biggest challenges with getting started with bringing humor into your life, into your speaking, into your to any kind of presentation that you do is just getting started, just trying and not being overly sensitive to people's reactions and not worrying about whether they liked it or didn't like it, just putting yourself out there and just having a go. Yeah, absolutely. That's the biggest uh, challenge. Yeah, yeah. Standing there, planting your feet squarely and put, leaving a big smile on your face no matter how the, any particular joke goes. Mm. You know, like I, I guess – um. It was Julia Morris when we were uh, touring around going on the way to Cardiff. I remember it really clearly. She talks about how there's big Julia and little Julia. Like little Julia is her in the car when we're driving down to Cardiff for doing a um, weekend of gigs together. But on stage, it's obviously big Julia. Mm-hmm. And I totally adopted that. You know, you and I talking, it's just little Marty talking. It's just regular yeah. me. Yeah. But when you're on stage, you've just got to have that absolutely bulletproof I've got three pairs of boxer shorts that I wear when I'm on stage and they're actually, they're Bjorn Borg boxer shorts and they're chain mail. The print on them is chain mail and it just gives, gives me that little smile when I put them on before going and speaking that I'm just bulletproof when I'm on stage. Yeah. It doesn't matter what happens. Yeah. I'm going to be me no matter what. Yep. And it's just having that mentality of there's no such thing as a big break. There's no one gig will ever make or break you. Like yep. any person's reaction is not going to be the deciding factor between whether you're successful or not and whether you have self-esteem or not. You know, like my speech that I do on stage is like a product that I sell and you have to separate yourself from that, like an artist in their paintings or an artist in their music or something like that. Or an actor, really. It's very much like putting on a personality, right? Like, I mean, when Heath Ledger was doing the Batman role, apparently he couldn't get out of the role. He got so into it. I mean, I think he had other issues too, but he got so into the role that he was apparently in the Joker role, even in his normal life. He was having difficulty distinguishing between the two Mm -hmm. because he took it on so seriously, but it's like you put on a different garb almost. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think that's a really essential thing to see that as a slightly different part of you than so that an audience's reaction 
doesn't crush you. And I, I guess I probably learned that from my uh, – I was an advertising copywriter for about three or four years mm-hmm. and uh, it was really smashed into me by my old boss, Simon Reynolds, that, you know, you are not your work. You are not your work. You know, just because I say that ad is crap doesn't mean I'm saying you're yep. crap. I'm just saying that you haven't quite nailed it and that's okay. And another good way to process events like that is to say what happens – and my reaction to the event are two separate things. And to be able to identify that they're two different things is useful. So if I make a joke in front of a huge crowd or a meeting, doesn't matter where, and people don't laugh, the event was that I made the joke and people didn't laugh. But my reaction to their not laughing is my choice. Yeah, yeah. And that's far more important. Your reaction to them not laughing is more important than whether the joke goes down well or not, like I was saying before, that um, it's so important for you just to leave your feet planted, leave your shoulders nice and square, put a big smile on your face. The thing I um, teach everyone when they come to me for this comedy training stuff I do is that you have to – all comedians have a big bank of what are called savers, Mm -hmm. which is lines that you've written in advance for when jokes don't go Mm -hmm. well because they won't. There's always times when they won't. If you plan for that, you know, for example – like the first time I did that thing about, you know, having a boy strapped to my yeah. chest, like no, no, no one really laughed anywhere near as loudly as I did because they couldn't, they didn't yeah. know that I was thinking about my 12-year-old son. They just thought I was a weird man who <laughs> would walk around with boys <laughs> strapped to his chest. And, and, um, and so like a prepared saver that a lot of comedians use is like uh, in my head, that's really, really funny, just not out there with you yeah. guys. <laughs> and then you say, and I'm okay with that. And, and then they go, oh, thank God, he's not – because if they see you're not stressed, you know, because yeah. you're the alpha male or the alpha alpha female, the alpha yeah. in the room when you're up on stage. And so you have to maintain your, your composure and not care if a joke falls flat. If they see you not be flustered, mm. then they just think, holy crap, how charismatic is this yeah. guy? You know, like, um, you know, the, the best speakers in the world don't have a totally polished never-fail performance mm. – they just handle those failures and those stuff ups, you know, when the slides don't work and that sort of thing, or the, the technician is like two slides behind them. They just handle those things really well. It's not like that stuff never happens. Mm. It just, they handle it with utter conviction and utter confidence and don't care. And that's where people associate charisma and confidence with you when you just stand there and you're in the zone and you're absolutely bulletproof. And you demonstrate that you are in control of the, your choices to people's reactions or you know you can choose how to react to other people's responses to your jokes yeah yeah absolutely absolutely okay so let's talk about some action points then and some quick wins so first step if you want to start incorporating humor into your conversations into your speeches first step have a go because most people are not trying and as you said at the start the bar is really low yeah yeah. it's like um being humorous, like, you know, most people are too scared to speak in public, so they don't even try. Right. And people that do speak in public a lot are too scared to try humor, so they don't even try. Because they think they have to be a qualified stand-up comic to be able to make a joke. Yeah, yeah. They have to, you know, in stand-up, you've got to hit them with a punchline about every 17 seconds or they just start throwing stuff yeah. at you. You know, whereas in business, if you speak for 20 minutes and you put four or five decent jokes to get a laugh out loud response from some of the audience they'll think he's head and shoulders above everyone else in his niche it's just a at the, at the bar is so low so as you say have a go quick action step number one just have a go have a go have a go the second thing is 
get local references. So if you're going to be doing a talk in Edinburgh, try and take the time to find out some funny things about Edinburgh or, more importantly, adjust your routine to Edinburgh. So if you're going to refer to places like leafy suburbs, then think of a leafy suburb in that area that will make them feel, oh, this person's taken the trouble to find out about this area and they will find that a little bit more relatable and engaging. Yeah, and, and just if, if you get on the day, buy the local paper and, and just have a look if anything, if anything on the front couple of pages relates to one of your stories, then, you know, just the fact that you can throw in, I know you guys are having the same issue with your local council here or, you know, mm. what, whatever it is, just throw in something and they all of a sudden you can see them, you know, that whole them and us thing. All of a sudden they see you as a little bit more of an us because you've taken the time to, to investigate and find out about them. The third thing is to look for epic fails in your niche. So if you're an automotive car salesman, look for automotive car epic fails. If you're a content marketer, look for content marketing gone horribly wrong and you yeah, know, yeah. use that so like, as part of your... I was doing a gig to one of the uh, big banks and a friend told me a story about one of the top five banks in the UK were sen- sending out an email blast to their top 5,000 wealthiest clients. So you can imagine the top 5,000 wealthiest clients of a bank in the UK would have some serious wealth. And, you know, sometimes you send an email out and it arrives looking nothing like you sent it because the HTML stuff's up or whatever. So this guy, to test this email, he registered a fake email address called rich.bastard at gmail.com. <laughs> and and you, know, you know what happened. The, the top 5,000 wealthiest clients of this bank got an email from their bank saying, Dear Rich Bastard. <laughs> <laughs> and, and the funniest part of it was three people complained that they didn't get the oh. email. They weren't, they weren't on the Rich Bastard <laughs> list. So, you know, like every time I speak to banks, I tell that story and it gets a huge response. But I just found that story on the internet. Mm. So there's some fantastic stories out there that just make you seem like, A, you've done some research on us. And B, you know, this guy understands how industry, how our industry works. If he brings us funny stories of things going wrong in our industry, like he totally gets us. So all you got to do is just ask Uncle Google. Yeah, yeah. Okay, and the last thing is, for me, at least this is my tip, and that is try and bring absurdity into the situation or try and see the absurdity of a situation to make it a little bit more lighthearted. I'm just trying to think of a joke here. But let me see how that works. But, you know, like my daughter is three and a half years old and she – keeps throwing all these little tantrums. And so, you know, when we're driving home from somewhere, if there hasn't been a massive tantrum for about 30 seconds, I might say, turn to my wife and say, wow, you know, 30-second tantrum-free moment. This is amazing. <laughs> something something like that. Yeah, yeah. But from a business point of view and from a – even just from a personal point of view, have you got time for one more quick yeah, story? Yeah, sure, man. Go for it. My wife uh, doesn't mind me saying this, that she has had an ongoing battle with anxiety and depression for many years. She was an accident emergency A lot of people who, sorry to interrupt you, but a lot of people who are the greatest comedians in the world have a higher, have a, tend to have depression. Mm -hmm. And she she had very, very bad postnatal depression after all three of our kids. Um, We've got three boys, 12, nine and four. And when I had my first kid, I was a full-time stand-up working in the UK when I had, uh, when we, when we had, I didn't have, <laughs> when we had our third kid, I was, my speaking career was, was already going really well here in Australia. Um, yeah, he's four now, Charlie. And so, but the only time that her incredibly bad postnatal depression, you know, after our third child, 
she confessed to me over the dinner table. She showed me the goodbye letters that wow. she'd written to all of us, you know, for when she was getting ready to to check out. But the only time that her mental health issues really sat me back on my backside was in the middle, my middle child, when I was just writing books at the time. So this idea of just constantly walking through life, looking for the funny, then just asking yourself, what's funny about this? What's funny about this? What's funny about this? It actually inoculates you against the regular stressors of, of the day. And it's been psychologically proven that deliberately choosing to laugh about something gives our brain the yes. impression of control over it. So it makes us think like, if I can laugh at this, I'm not totally weighed down by it because I have I have the perception to see the other side of it and, as yeah. you say, see the absurdity of it, like with your daughter having right, tantrums. Right. And, and it makes me feel like this hasn't got on top of mm-hmm. me if I can take the time to laugh at it. And and it's so true. So I just encourage you know all your listeners, even just as a way of life, forget about the whole business thing, as a way of life. Like I've done this book series. I've got the What I Wish I Knew thing. I've, mm-hmm. I've interviewed over yeah. a 1,000 people from this book series. And if there's one thing, everybody says, it's words to the effect of, if you laugh about it on your 80th birthday, start laughing about it now. Like, just keep looking for the humor in every situation because it's always there. Right. Yeah, yeah. And I just want to say that, you know, I'm not sure that your wife really had postnatal depression. I think having three boys is a pretty good recipe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's more a reason rather than… <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so what books have had the biggest impact on you, mate, and, and why? Well, the, the first book I was ever given when I was doing advertising back, it would have been 95, 96 the first book in the self-help motivational sort of genre was the book Maximum Achievement by Brian Tracy. Oh, yes. Which was really his – he really sort of went around and it was more a a synthesis of all the stuff that had been going around before then. So it was just a real 300-page summary of all the self-help literature up and where, you know, learning about how, you know, like all the think and grow rich stuff, like your thoughts really control because your life really happens in your brain in here. Controlling what goes on in here is the absolute key to living the life you want. And, and so, an epic three hundred page summary. Yeah, yeah. No, it was. It was um, a lot, very, very dense. A lot of stuff in it. But um, I think because I think most people that first book that really opens their their mind up to the fact that it's not just what your parents told you. There's other wisdom that's out there apart mm-hmm. from what your parents told you and religion. I've got nothing against religion, but, yeah. um, but just there's other stuff out there if you go looking for it. Mm-hmm. So Maximum Achievement was a really big one for me. And Steve Martin's autobiography was a fantastic one for me. Born Standing um, Up. Yeah, yeah, absolutely fantastic. Just because even to the point of totally ruining gigs for himself, he would just try doing some new stuff anyway. Mm. And he would continually just, you know, this gig's going really well. So that's not the excuse to the showbiz saying is pull on the old rope, like do the stuff that I know works really well. Yep. That's not an excuse to do that, which is the temptation, you know, when you're up there and a, and a gig's going really well and you're doing stand-up, the temptation is pull out all your best material to yes. make sure you get a standing ovation and an encore and, you know, this crowd's fantastic, they love me. 
he would use that as an excuse to try some experimental new stuff. And, you know, sometimes that would completely cruel the gig for him, but he got to know whether that stuff worked or not. I actually watched a little documentary or something of the sort on YouTube about him recently. And it started (laughs) off, it didn't say, it revealed that it was Steve Martin at the start, but it talked about this boy who was doing these one minute gigs and two minute gigs. And he was really doing very, very short gigs and he gradually increased it. And he kind of pretty much, worked so hard for so long to build his skill set and the result is spectacular i think he's a very funny guy but yeah yeah he's worked it and you're right he's been very adventurous and he's taken risks in a calculated way he was very brave to he did i think most of his idea creation and writing for want of a better word actually on stage just by following yes. his his instincts and and seeing what happened. A guy called Peter Berner here in Australia talked to me about the, the same sort of thing when I was first starting. Because when, when I first started doing stand-up, I just begged all the comedians who were ahead of me at the time, like, you know, James O'Loughlin, Kitty Flanagan, Peter Saleh, Akmel Saleh. Um, Kitty Flanagan's really funny. She's awesome. She's fantastic. And I just, like, bought them dinner or bought them a beer or whatever and just asked them, how do I get as good as you as quickly as possible? And, and Pete Berner said that same thing. He said, you know, if you can, be brave enough to do a lot of writing on stage. You know, you're a, you're a reasonably funny guy. Just get up there, do a bit of material, then just start talking. And if nothing funny's come out after three minutes, then do a bit more material and then just start talking again. Oh, yes. Um, which is, which, but it, it took me four or five years to have the guts to be able to do that. You know, so, it, um, mm. so yeah, so Steve Martin's biography. Okay, so how do listeners find out more about you and is there anything else that I should have asked you that I haven't asked you? Uh, no, there's, um, if, if you're interested in getting some humor into your speaking or presenting, there's, if you go up, just released an online training product called more funny, more money. Uh And that'll be followed up very soon with, um, one aimed at social media called more funny, more followers. Nice. Yeah. That one will be ready in about two or three weeks where it's just got, I'm just going to keep adding to that one as time goes on with joke formats that you can repurpose for your own social media stuff. You know, for example, if a tree falls in the forest and no one is there to hear it, um, does it make a sound? You know, you see a lot of freight, like um, I saw one the other day, you know, if if a man speaks in the forest and there's no woman there to hear him, is he still wrong? Um, you know, and, and, <laughs> I like that. And um, I saw another card on if, um, you know, the Brexit stuff that's going on at the moment oh, yes. and the Labor Party in, in, the U- in the UK is collapsing. Is If a tree falls in the forest and the BBC isn't there to hear it, is it still Jeremy Corbyn's fault? <laughs> and, and so so like this this more funny, more followers thing will be lots of little formulas like that that you yeah, can yeah, repurpose yeah. to your own. Sorry, I'm, I'm getting distracted because I'm so in love with my own stuff. <laughs> but the, That's um, unusual. <laughs> this um, more funny, if you go to morefunnymoremoney.com slash masterclass, there's a, okay. a one-hour free masterclass there for anyone who wants to get some insights into cool. how to add humor into your speaking and presenting and that sort of thing. And if you're looking for an awesome keynote speaker or MC or something like that for your corporate function, I'd just martywilson.com.au. It's all, cool. There's all videos and everything there about how to handle change better, how to use a fair bit of stuff about using humor in your speaking there as well. Cool. Well, I'm sure some of our listeners will be interested in that, Marty, because I've got a fair amount of self-employed professionals and business owners in the listenership. So thank you very much, Marty. Thanks for being on the show. Pleasure. All the best. Thanks, Ash. All right, buddy. Take care. Stay well. Bye, man. Thanks for listening to the Productive Insights Podcast. You can find all the links in the show notes below this episode on ProductiveInsights.com. You can also ask questions in the comment section that Ash personally answers. How can Ash help you today? 